All right, hopefully you got a handout there. Sorry for the, the delay. I am. We are covering prophecy tonight, and uh, it's lesson seven. We're going to be uh, looking at this for the next two uh, Sunday nights, and so we'll begin this evening uh, by just looking at uh, the, the special um, nature of, of prophetic literature, uh, and then we'll end by looking at a subsection of prophetic literature, which is apocalyptic literature. It's probably what you think about whenever you hear uh, the study of prophecy. Isn't that what normally comes to your mind? You think the study of prophecy, you think Revelation, you think Daniel. That surely is prophecy. But that's actually a, a subset, uh, a subgenre, as it's called, of prophecy. And that's called apocalyptic uh, literature. And we'll, we'll look at that. It sounds way more complicated than, uh, than it really is. So. You have your handout. We're going to cover up to the homework tonight, Lord willing. That's, that's the goal um, anyway. And uh, then next week, we're actually going to walk through the, the homework together, which is Revelation 20. And you'll notice if you look there at, uh, what is it, page um, toward the end. So page 6, 7, 8... Page 6, 7, and 8. So it's a long assignment. It's an important assignment. And it will help you to, uh, uh, to work on, uh, on some of, of these things. Now, uh, my pulpit clock up here says 2.32. So I have plenty of time tonight. <laughs> so someone make sure that you let me know whenever it, uh, it, it gets around 7-ish. Uh, right? Or, I'm sorry, 6-ish. Yeah. That was that. <laughs> Please, six. I, I always get the five and the six o'clock start uh, mixed up. Just stay all night. Just stay all night. Well, I could have stayed in there all night. I don't know about you all. Just hearing the transforming power of the gospel and people unashamed uh, to, uh, to proclaim it. That's a special moment. I was praying with those guys downstairs before we came up, uh, thinking about my feelings and what I felt, uh, what I can remember. Uh, I still remember a lot, very vividly, um, you know, 26 years ago or so now, going in and being baptized on, on Sunday night in the church uh, that prayed for me, in the church that um, Tracy was part of, was, was baptized uh, a year and a half prior to that, and... Um, she, the same church that uh, she uh, intentionally invited everybody over the Easter before, so it had been in April, to have breakfast between Easter sunrise service and the main service. And, of course, the angle was, let's bring all the church people over, we'll cook breakfast, and maybe they'll rub off on Brian and he'll come to Easter service, you know, which, to my shame, didn't work at, at, at all. But these people came were very gracious uh, to me, and uh, one of them was my friend, uh, became a dear friend of mine as a deacon, um, was saved about five years before I was. He came over. He was recently saved, so he was very interested in seeing me come to Christ. We had a similar lifestyle, 
and he came over and somebody asked him to get something out of the refrigerator and he opened the refrigerator and, and it's just full of beer. And uh, he said, I can remember thinking, wow, God's going to have to do a big work in order to save this guy. Um, and then he said, you know, that, that's really the wrong way to think about it. Uh, all salvation is a big work. Whether you're a church kid and think that you're a pretty good person or whether you're a sinner, uh, sinner like me, where there's some outward manifestations. So I was baptized before that church, and, um, and it was a, a celebration very similar to tonight. So I love the way that you rejoice and clap and celebrate, because it is a, a time of, uh, of rejoicing. So look, if you would, how to study the Bible, Lesson 7, How to Study Prophecy. So we went through the basics of of hermeneutics, the rules of the game, and we talked about context, and we talked about um, allowing the the scriptures to speak. We we want to do exegesis, not eisegesis. We, we want the scriptures to, to to speak out to us rather than us reading into in, into them. And we've talked about different narratives. the The Bible was written by God, uh, is the ultimate author through human beings, and and it's presented to us in different genres. And just like we would, uh, uh, we would read, naturally read the newspaper as the newspaper, and we would read poetry as poetry, the, we should do the same thing with Scripture. Um, and each of those genres uh, are, are something to take into account whenever you're interpreting it. One of those genres is, is prophecy. And the way prophecy should be studied is has been subject to, to debate for a really uh, a long time. Uh, it's beyond our study tonight to be able to go into all the different uh, hermeneutical uh, angles of it. You're actually going to get some of that uh, in next Sunday night because we'll actually apply hermeneutics to a, to a prophetic passage and we'll, we'll see how to, how to apply it. But we're not going to go into all the different... Uh, uh, covenantal approach and historical, grammatical, contextual approach, which is what we do, um, because we just don't have time. But, but I want you to understand something. It's not as complicated as it may seem. And I don't know what you feel or think whenever you, you think Revelation or Daniel or reading a prophecy. If you begin to break out in cold sweats or think, wow, I don't know that I'm going to get a whole lot out of that, I don't want you to think that. And and my prayer would be at the end of this, you'll, you'll say, hey, you know, I mean, there's some things I need to know, but it's not as, not as, uh, as intimidating as, uh, as I first thought. So first of all, all the normal Bible study principles that you've learned so far should be applied to prophecy as well. There's, there's some nuances that, that you need to be aware of because it's a specific genre, uses specific linguistic tools like like metaphor and um, things like that, similes, but, but you apply the same principles to prophecy as you do to, uh, to the rest of the, uh, of the Bible. The second thing you need to realize whenever you, you're talking about prophecy, the, the, the debate or the cleavage between how people look at prophecy really has to do with how much of it do you take as literal, metaphorical, or, or allegorical uh, even. So everybody, no matter which side of the, the hermeneutical fence that, that you're on, 
And when I say that I'm speaking in general, general terms, I mean, there, there are really wacky ways to interpret the Bible. We're not talking about people that you would just reject. We're talking about serious Bible students that want to get the text right. All would agree that there, uh, that there is both figurative and literal text in prophecy. Everybody believes that. The disagreement is how much is literal and how much is figurative. How much is symbolic and just stated in a way to symbolize a general principle or general truth or how much of it is, is literal, like this literally is going to, is going to take place. Um, and so in this lesson, we're going to seek uh, to, to gain a basic understanding of how to, how to study and interpret prophetic portions of the, of the Bible. And the first place we start is you need to understand that this is a specific genre, and so there are literary devices that are used, uh, not exclusively in prophecy, but they're used in prophecy more than just about anywhere else in the Bible. So we're going to go over some terms. And if you took English class, you're going to be familiar with these, but they're, if you're like me and you didn't pay any attention to in English class, you have to, to learn those uh, again. My mother was an English teacher, uh, had a, a doctorate level in English, all but her dissertation, and I had to learn what a participle was whenever I went to seminary because I didn't pay any attention in English class, and that put me, put me behind. So here's some terms that you need to understand if you're interpreting uh, prophecy. First of all, uh, you need to understand the, um, the word eschatology. It, it, it's, it's from the, the, the Greek word eschatos, which means last things, and so it's the, the ology of last things, the study of or the, the, the doctrine of last uh, things. Um, that's pretty basic. Probably everybody knows that. You may get uh, eschatology confused with ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. All of the ologies are study of or doctrine of. And, and then the first part of that word just tells you it's the study or doctrine of what? This is of the last thing. So the end times, as we, we would call it. The second uh, term um, or literary device that, that you need to be aware of that's used in prophecy is what's called a type. A type of Christ, you may have heard uh, a preacher say or read in, uh, in something somewhere. But a type is, a, is, a, is an Old Testament person, place, or thing that has a literal historical meaning, but which is a model, a prototype, a pattern, a shadow of a greater future reality. And usually, if not always, they prefigure the person of Jesus Christ or, or his redemptive work. And, and here's, a, here's a couple examples. First of all, the example is Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18. Somebody look up Genesis 14, 18. Raise your hand if you'd be willing to look that up and, and read that for us. Be willing to do that. Thank you. And then after that, we'll, I'll tell you what Hebrews 7 says. The second one is the, the bronze serpent 
Numbers 21.9. Who would be willing to read Numbers 21.9? Okay, thank you. And uh, who would be willing to read John 3.14? Thank you, Nate. And then we'll, we'll stop there. All right, Genesis 14.18. We're, we're looking at an example of a type, which is a literal person, place, or thing in the Old Testament that that points to or prefigures Jesus Christ or, or something revealed in the, in the New Testament. Go ahead. In the time of that, King Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Okay, so Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18 was a literal person, a literal figure. And Hebrews 7 tells us that he was a type of, of Jesus Christ. Um, we won't read all of Hebrews 7, but if you want to see how he prefigured Jesus, you can go to Hebrews 7. Uh, the other one's probably more familiar to you is, is the bronze serpent. So read Numbers 21.9. He was prefiguring the, the death of Christ on, on the cross. Okay, so that's Numbers 21.9. That was a literal event that took place in history. Israel had sinned, and part of the remedy was that God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and those who obeyed God by faith, looking to it, were, were healed. And so listen to John 3.14. Who had John 3.14? Look at Nate. All right, so there is a type. Jesus associates himself with that, with that historical event. Now, here's something that's really important to remember about types. They'll always be identified in the New Testament as one. You'll find the example in the New Testament. So one of the dangers that you can get in in types is you begin seeing Jesus everywhere because you love him. And that's a good thing. You're looking for him. And so you, you immediately find things in the Old Testament that seem to prefigure Jesus Christ, like Rahab's scarlet thread or, or any number of, of other things. Or the, the, uh, the Song of Solomon, as, as uh, some of the allegorical interpreters used. The problem with that is it's never specifically stated in the New Testament that that was the case. And so you're not on, on a sound exegetical ground to say that was a type of Christ unless the New Testament specifically says that it is. And the New Testament says that Melchizedek and the bronze serpent and several other things are types of Jesus Christ. The other is is the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. The, what did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the tenet, uh, sin of the world. The Lamb and Passover Lamb in the Old Testament was a type of, uh, of Jesus Christ. So the first is a type. The second is a, is a simile. Simile is, a, is an expressed comparison 
that uses the word like and, and as to indicate it's a comparison. A comparison is being made between two things. And, so, and the comparison is expressed, meaning it tells you very specifically. That's how you know it's a simile. I'm going to compare something, and I'm going to tell you very specifically that I'm comparing because I'm going to use the word it's like or as. And so Revelation 1, 13 through 16, look at all of these likes in here. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across uh, his breast with a, a golden girdle and and his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. They weren't literal snow or literal wool. His hair wasn't. His eyes were like a flame of fire. So, so he's comparing his eyes to fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when, when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of, of many waters. Images in our mind come whenever we, we read this because John is trying to describe for us the, the vision of, that he saw of Jesus Christ. How would you, how would you do that? Well, he, he uses this, these similes to try to do it. And in the right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So, so a simile tells you it's a figure of speech by using like or as. They're probably the easiest. I, this is my favorite whenever I had to take uh, an English exam because I could see the word like. Ah, oh, that's a simile. I know that one. So here is the second figure of speech that, that's like a sister, a metaphor. A metaphor is also a comparison between two things, but it's unexpressed. And so a metaphor doesn't tell you that it's a figure of speech. But again, you can figure it out. Well, look, look at some examples. A metaphor doesn't use words uh, like or, or, or as, like a simile does. Here's a metaphor. I am the door. I am the bread of life. You are the, the light of the, the world. Is Jesus a literal door? Does anybody think that he is a literal wooden object that swings on hinges? No. We naturally know what he means. See, he's the, he's the entrance. He's the gateway. He's, he's how you get in. I'm the bread of life. It's obvious that Jesus didn't intend these phrases to be taking, taken literally. What he is doing is making a comparison between familiar things and not so familiar things. He's trying to explain something about himself through something that would be very familiar. So... So Jesus is like a door, like sustaining bread. We are like lights that, in that we live and we speak truth, but it doesn't use the word like. So that's the difference between a simile and a metaphor. Next is an allegory. An allegory is even more sneaky um, about the meaning. No, no like, and it's not always clear of what the intended meaning is. I mean, you know very specifically when Jesus says, I am the door. An allegory is an extended metaphor. So it, it could go on for a really long time, not, not a sentence, but, but a whole chapter or, or a paragraph. And it doesn't use words to indicate a comparison as being made like a simile, like like or as. And, and it doesn't have to be true to life. And unlike a parable, 
Virtually every part of the allegory has a secondary meaning. So you remember when we went through parables? Don't get wrapped up in all the details of parables. Well, what's the, what's the point? Well, the point usually is expressed to you at the very end of the parable. Or you also know why Jesus gave the parable, because he states it up front. But an allegory's not not like that. An allegory has a secondary meaning, uh, an allegorical vision of the tree in, in Daniel 4, 11 through 27. The allegorical usage of Sarah and Hagar in Galatians 4, 21 through 5, 1. So Paul actually uses that in the, in the New Testament. Or the beast in, in Revelation 1 through 8 or Revelation 7, 7 through 18. Those are examples of, of using something as, a, as an allegory, uh, something to represent something else with spiritual uh, meaning. F, prophecy, also uses figurative and symbolic terms. Uh, we're talking about some terms that we need to understand, things that prophecy uses, because you need to, to know what to look for whenever you're, whenever you're reading it. Words can be used three different ways. They can be used literally, figuratively, or symbolically. So figurative use of words is, a, you know, is, is very vast. Uh, there's over 200 types being found in Scripture, and um, we just saw some of the common examples of how, use, how they're used figuratively. Both figurative and symbolic uses of words use the literal meaning, though, of words to communicate a secondary meaning. So what that means is that it uses words that you understand. There's, you still need to know grammar and syntax and context and, and all those things in order to, in order to, to, to figure it out. Um, so you can tell what it says. You just have to examine what, what it means and and you're looking for that, that meaning. The figurative use, figurative use of words is very vast. A symbol is similar to a type. We went over that. But it does not need to have Old Testament roots. It does not need to have a historical reality like Melchizedek. And it doesn't need to point to a future reality. It's a timeless comparison of physical objects which represent spiritual realities. Here's an example. Notice the example of how the word sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N is used below. In Mark 1, here is a literal use of the word. And when the evening had come, after the sun had set, S-U-N, that's a literal use of the word. Here's a figurative use, Revelation seven sixteen. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst, neither shall the, shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now, is the sun literally beating down on them? You understand exactly what that means. You've been out there and you felt the sun beat down on you. It's a figurative use of the word sun. And here is a symbolic use, Revelation 12.1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. 
So symbolic use of the word son. It's an example of how those terms are, are used. Now I want you to notice in, is that in, in all of those, they're plain. It's just the, the, the part that shouldn't intimidate you or where you should be going. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of words there. I don't know if I remember everything that he said. But in every exa- example, whether it's Melchizedek in Hebrews 7 or whether it's Numbers in John 3 or, or those examples of son that I just used, wasn't it natural when you read that to, to know exactly what, what he's saying? I mean, it wasn't like, oh, let me, let me, let me go ask uh, one of the seminarians to figure out what, what, what this means for the son to beat down on me. I mean, you know what that means. Um, so don't be over-intimidated. Uh, just read the passage and, and apply some of, these, some of these principles. But here's where it gets a little bit more tricky, okay? G. There are multiple fulfillment passages. Passages that are fulfilled in phases. There's a near prototypical fulfillment and one more distant or more complete. Um, we heard in the book of Romans this morning how Paul was talking about the gospel of God that he preached was, was in the Old Testament. The promises that are being fulfilled now were made beforehand by his prophets, God's prophets, and they're recorded for us in Holy Scripture. So he wasn't saying it's a new gospel Here's a new covenant, but that covenant was foretold in the Old Testament, wasn't it? The new, the, the new covenant was, was, was foretold in the, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's just a fulfillment of that. So, so there's a, there are phases, if, if you will. And these passages are often hotly debated. This is really where you get into the, the covenant and, and otherwise. It's difficult sometimes to try and determine the single interpretation of the passage if it has more than one fulfillment. Isaiah 7. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Um, Does Isaiah know that he was talking about the Messiah there? Does that have a literal end-time fulfillment? I think Isaiah did know that he was talking about about the Messiah. Uh, here's an example, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. Does anybody know, before you even read that, what 2 Samuel 7 is about? Davidic covenant, that's right. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. There's a near fulfillment of this passage, and it speaks about Solomon. How do we know that it has got a near fulfillment? Well, because it says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. Did Jesus ever commit iniquity? No, but Solomon did, didn't he? Lots of it, right? (laughs) So there's a near fulfillment. The passage speaks of Solomon, who is a literal son of David, Build a house for God or a temple, because David was a man who shed blood. He committed iniquity, and he was corrected with the the rod of men. So there's a figurative 
figure of speech, a rod of men. So he was chastised or, or punished. It's also a far fulfillment of this. This passage speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of David who will build a house for God, who has a throne and a kingdom which will be established forever. How do we know this is a, this is future? Well, it's because there's the throne of his kingdom is forever. And he was literally the son of God, and God was his, his father. Just one of a number of examples, and you could probably pull one out. This is, what does this one mean? And we'd be here the rest of the night. But we're giving basics of hermeneutics. Um, so here is the, the, the subset of apocalyptic literature. What, what time do we have? 557. All right, perfect. All right, apocalyptic literature. So we're talking about prophecy, how to interpret prophecy. You know these terms, you understand what it is, and you're reading the examples that are given, and you're going, well, that doesn't seem that intimidating. I can figure it out. There are some passages, though, that, that have a near and far fulfillment that you're going, okay, I might need to work on that one a little bit. And now I'm going to show you the, the, the sub-category uh, of prophecy, which is apocalyptic literature. Technically, Revelation and Daniel are the only two books of the Bible that fit into apocalyptic literature in its purest form. You, you might be able to, to say parts of Ezekiel and maybe a couple other passages, but but for the most part, it's Daniel and Revelation. And, and we've already preached through both of those books. And so if you want to know how to interpret one of those or how we interpret one of those, you can go listen to all of those messages verse by verse by verse. But apocalyptic literature is a subcategory of prophecy. As I said, that's probably what people normally think of, which has a historical fulfillment and uses many symbols and figures. Some of its characteristics are this. Apocalyptic literature focuses on God's intervention into time, space, and history to judge wickedness or to bring about everlasting righteousness. So apocalyptic literature is judgment or God bringing about his eternal kingdom. It, 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 it's, it's, it's not just the end, but, but it's how God's going to do that. It's, it's, a, it's revealing that how God's going to break into time, break into history, wrap it all up or establish something. Number two, it's usually in the form of visions and dreams. Now, Revelation and Daniel both have parts of them that, that, are, that are not all visions and dreams. Um, Revelation starts with a vision, vision of Jesus Christ, John, Revelator on the Isle of Patmos. He sees a vision of the risen Lord. But then what comes after John's vision? Seven letters to real literal churches from a real literal Christ in heaven, historical churches, um, given at that specific time by Paul or, or by John, by God to John. And then it gets into after the 
the seven churches of Revelation, you now are transitioned back to back to this apocalyptic literature. It's prophecy, this vision of the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5. And it all centers on the sun um, going to the, the throne and taking the title deed of the universe from, from the Father's hand, the one who's on the throne. And he begins to break the seals, sealed seven times on the scroll, and read what's on there. And as he reads, those are unleashed on the, on the earth. But there's seven letters. And we went through Daniel, the, the first six chapters of Daniel. It's narrative in there, the story. This is Daniel, this is where he is, and there's a real king there. And, but there's some, he has a vision. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, some dreams, the interpretation of that dream. But once you get to chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, through, through the end, you, you, have, you have apocalyptic literature. Um, it gets more apocalyptic is probably the best way of saying it. So it's usually in the form of visions and dreams, which is why they're sometimes difficult to interpret. Number three, the images are usually not true to life, but symbolic. Not true to life. Sometimes they are. Um, when John talks about stars falling from the sky, um, that can literally happen. When I went out on the porch this morning and looked up, there was, it wasn't a star, but there was something going through the, through the sky. It wasn't blinking. It was way up there. I don't know whether it was the International Space Station, which you can see, or, or what, but there it was. I mean, it's not beyond uh, the um, reality for, for asteroids to, to fall or otherwise. But ten-headed beasts or you know, two-headed beasts or beasts with wings that fly, I mean, those aren't, aren't real. They're not real beasts. They're, they're symbolic beasts that describe something for us. Um, and yet there's parts of it that, 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 that is real, like a lion or a, a leopard with wings. And so they're usually not true to life but symbolic. So there's a lot of that in apocalyptic literature. And that's usually where people get in trouble, right? They take something that doesn't have a complete... Um, I was going to say reality. They're not, it's not a complete reality. There's parts of it, and then they begin to dissect it and say this means this, and that means that, and this means this. Um, so apocalyptic literature. There are three general hermeneutical approaches to apocalyptic literature. What I am giving you, uh, a lot of what I'm giving you, all three of these would use for the most part. Um, but then whenever you get to apocalyptic literature, there's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Um, the intent is not to say that what they do is say, well, I'm a premillennialist, so this is how I'm going to inter interpret the scriptures, or I'm postmillennial, so this is how I'm going to interpret them. However, the way in which each of those groups approach the scriptures, um, there's some unique aspects. And it leads them to, to draw interpretations or conclusions um, that, are, that are a little bit different. Uh, brothers, 
in the Lord and the gospel. This is a secondary matter. It's a very important matter. Um, but if you are amillennial or postmillennial, um, we will see each other in heaven, and the Lord will straighten out your eschatology then. Premillennialism is a system of eschatology which believes that most of the, the New Testament prophecy is still future. Um, pre-millennia, the, the millennial reign of Christ. Most of the prophecy is still future. Premillennialists interpret prophecy in a more literal fashion. I'm generalizing. Okay, you can find people that don't do this. I mean, when you talk about premillennialists, there's there's uh, dispensationalists, there's classic dispensationalists, there's progressive dispensationalists, there's premillennialists that believe in uh, the the rapture, that believe in the rapture at the mid tribulation, post tribulation. I mean, you can get in all over the place. So I'm giving you general premillennial. Premillennialists interpret prophecy in a more literal fashion. The more literal approach to studying prophecy compels one to arrive at the conclusion that, number one, there's still a future for ethnic Israel, the ethnic nation Israel. That's really the unique aspect to premillennialism versus postmill and amill. Both postmillennialists and amillennialists believe that, that the church has replaced Israel. The, God is is bringing about a new people of God. And so he's, he's bringing both Jew and Gentile together in the church, and therefore there's no future prophecy for, for the ethnic nation of, of Israel. They also believe that there's always existed a, a kingdom of God. Number two, there'll be a literal earthly kingdom, and that the kingdom is spiritual, spiritually reigning in your heart, but there's a literal coming kingdom. Number three, premillennialists believe that we are now in what's called the church age during which God is offering the, the kingdom primarily to the Gentiles. That's probably an overstatement. God's offering the kingdom to everybody, Jew and Gentile. It just happens that the majority of those coming into the kingdom are Gentiles, which is what Paul's going to deal with in Romans 9 through, uh, through 11. But the kingdom's offered to everybody. Number four, at the end... Of this age, the saints, both dead and alive, will be caught up in the air to be forever with the Lord. The rapture. Okay, caveat: that's not always part of premillennialism. You can be a premillennialist and not believe in the rapture. Uh, number five: after the rapture, a seven-year tribulation period will ensue when God will focus His attention on Israel and on the the wicked of the earth and. During the tribulation period, which is the time of Jacob's trouble, many Jews will come to faith that have previously rejected the Messiah. Number six, the tribulation periods will close, will come to an end, when Christ literally returns to the earth, separating the sheep from the goats, binding Satan, and setting up his literal earthly kingdom, which will last for a thousand years. Seven, during Christ's thousand-year regime, the... The raptured saints will rule and reign with him. The curse will be partially lifted, and men will be extended in life like before the flood. Number eight, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed, deceived, uh, deceiving the nations, bringing God's final judgment. Nine, the, the earth and the heavens will be recreated. The eternal state will begin. And premillennialists believe that Christ could come any minute. Christ's return is imminent. 
That's probably old hat for you. You've heard that. You've heard that through Revelation. You've heard that through Daniel. What do postmillennialists believe, or what's it's a system of prophecy? What are some characteristics? Well, it takes a more figurative approach to interpreting prophecy, believing that most of the New Testament has already been fulfilled. Again, these are general terms. You'll find postmillennialists like premillennialists that won't believe all of these things, but this is general. Some of the distinctives of postmillennialism are, number one, Christ began his kingdom reign in 70 A.D. after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Number two, the tribulation immediately preceded and culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So tribulation has, has already taken place. Number three, Satan is presently bound by the preaching of the gospel. Number four, believers will turn the world around for Christ through aggressive evangelism, education, and infiltration into all forms of government, media, and society. That's why most of our founders were, were post-millennialists. Number five, the majority but not all people will be saved immediately preceding Christ's return. So it's going to get better. More people are going to come into the, the kingdom. Number six, the thousand-year reign of Christ is an unspecified period of time of widespread victory on, on the earth by, by the church's efforts as the church preaches the gospel and takes over the, the world or reaches the, the world. Number seven, the church's, after the church's victory, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead Catching away or snatching away where it will, will, will occur and the eternal state will ensue. There is no special future for ethnic Israel as the church has taken the place of Israel and the prophecies to Israel are fulfilled or spiritually enjoined by the church. And Christ cannot come back at any time. That may be an overstatement, but, but generally... Uh, the rejection of, of eminence because Christ is going to come as the, the church expands and the gospel is proclaimed. So there's something that has to happen before Christ will, will, will come. Amillennialism amillennialism is a system of prophecy which also interprets prophecy in a more figurative way. And some of the distinctives of amillennialism are Generally, number one, Christ's kingdom extends from his resurrection until the final judgment at the end of the age. So his kingdom was inaugurated at the resurrection. The Bema Seat judgment, the sheep and goats judgment, the white, great white throne judgment all happen at the end of the age when Christ returns. Number three, the thousand years of revelation Chapter 20 is not a literal thousand years, but represents the, un, 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 the undefined length of time between Christ's resurrection and his return. So we're already in the, that, that thousand years, um, and we don't know when it's going to end, but it'll end whenever Christ returns. Number four, Christ is now reigning in heaven and on earth through the lives of believers. Number five, Satan is bound 
and has been bound by Jesus' resurrection and is not deceiving the nations any longer because of the preaching of the gospel. Number six, Satan will be released at the end of the age, right before Jesus appearing, to deceive the nations. So he's going to be let loose. And so some of the things that you see in Revelation are going to happen, but they're going to be condensed. They're going to happen at the end. Number seven, after the second coming, the eternal state will ensue. So there's no literal thousand-year kingdom. Number eight, there is no special future for Israel as a nation. Number nine, the church has taken the place of Israel, and the prophecies to Israel are either nullified or spiritually enjoyed by the church. Nullified because they've rejected their Messiah whenever he came. And number ten, Christ can come back at any moment to set up the eternal state. Um, so he can come back anytime. There's nothing that's required for him to, uh, to return. So with all that, let me, let me just briefly give you some, some guidelines for studying prophecy. I know it's a lot, but it's a document you can take and, and look at. So let me, like, cinch all of this up together, and then next time we'll practice this in Revelation 20. Guidelines for studying prophecy. First, when you're reading prophecy, take a literal interpretation of your passage unless there's a specific reason not to do so. I mean, just like you were reading and it made sense to you, take that interpretation. As the saying goes, if the literal meaning makes sense, then seek no other sense. I mean, why look for meaning if the words are plain? B, remember that some prophets were unable to explain in words what they saw in visions. I kind of already alluded to that, no pun intended. I mean, how would you describe, how would you write down? You have the task of writing down what you saw when you saw the, the exalted Christ. They did their best to relay what they saw, but often could not explain details in words which, which meet our curiosities. What, what do you mean, eyes like a flame of fire? I mean, is this like white fire? Is it red fire? Was it a lot of fire? Was it, I mean, did it, did it glow a lot or, or a little? I mean, you read that and I want to know. But... They can't satisfy all my curiosities or yours. C, and here's, I think, one of the most important ones. Just focus on the big picture of the main thought, which the author is trying to convey. Ask yourself, is the author's intent to to teach a time sequence of prophetic events or something else? Some of the common reasons for God giving us predictive prophecy are for these big picture or main thought ideas. It's to encourage us about the the future hope that we have in Christ. So the book of Daniel was written. To give us hope to persevere in trials. That's why the book of Daniel was written. (laughs) To motivate us to godly living, knowing that Jesus can come back any moment. D, don't neglect prophecy. Don't be intimidated by it. Uh, Some pastors and teachers would never think about preaching or teaching through the book of Revelation because they're intimidated by the language and the style of book. It's not good for a number of reasons. Three of them are listed here. We're to teach the whole counsel of God, you, you know. Remember MacArthur saying years ago, um, 
I mean, you can't tell me that God put the book of Daniel and Revelation in the Bible, and he's so, he's so particular to reveal himself and everything about himself and everything about you. And he's so specific. He, you know, he's, he's given us all of these books and all these words. You, you can't tell me that he did all that, and he's just going to muff the end. Like, like, it doesn't really matter whether you know what, what happens in the end. And uh, we'll, we'll make everything else clear, but you, but you can't figure this one out. I'm going to make this one a little bit more harder. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Um, teach the whole counsel of God, which includes the prophecies. Don't teach only prophecy, because um, you need to teach the whole counsel of God. Number two, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Prophecy is profitable. Um, it's to teach us, to rebuke us, to, to correct us. And Revelation speaks very directly to this. It's the only book of the Bible which promises a blessing at the beginning and end for those who read it. Revelation 1.3 and Revelation 22.7. That alone ought to make you want to read it. And finally, don't try to force your theological system on prophetic passages. I joke about, you know, uh, amillennial, postmillennial, being corrected in heaven. I'm happy to be corrected in heaven. I'm happy to be corrected by the Bible at, at any point in time. I, um, I don't take a premillennial position because that's what I was taught. I remember being challenged by this. I, I remember going into seminary and always having been taught that perspective and hearing for the first time somebody interpret Matthew 24 different than, than, than me. Going, wow. Sounds like a pretty good argument there. I've never thought about that. Why do I believe what I believe? And I had to come to the conclusion, I believe what I believe because that's what my pastor taught me. And what did that do? It drove me into the scriptures to say, well, let me look at this argument. Let me apply this. And when I came out of that, I can now say I believe I know what Matthew 24 teaches, and it's from a premillennial perspective. But, but you have to go through that yourself to, you know, to own it. But don't bring a, a theological system, you know. You believe in the rapture, so you see the rapture here, and you see the rapture there, and you see the rapture there. When it's not there at all, don't do that. Um, don't try to force your theological system on prophetic passages. Let them speak for themselves first, then see how they fit into your doctrinal system of last things. Do exegesis. Read out of, not eisegesis, read into when you study the prophetic text. We'll do that next Sunday night. Many have come up with bizarre, fanciful interpretations by reading things into the text which the author could not have had in mind um, whenever he, he wrote it. So that's it. Um, homework, y you can read over this. It would probably be good. You saw where we're going next time because this is what we're going to be doing. So I would at least, at least read this. And I would read Revelation 20 ahead of time uh, because we're going to walk through all of, these, all of these passages. Okay? Time is it now? Wow. Okay. See, you better put a clock up here because I usually end sooner than that. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and for the privilege to be here tonight. 
you bless us as we try to be faithful with your word. Thank you for encouraging us through it. Thank you for the baptisms tonight. We pray for these three who have publicly proclaimed their followers of you. Keep them from the evil one. Help them to grow. Help us to be good church members. Um, And uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.